GM GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really enjoy these best of episodes because there's so much insightful content that we create with this podcast where we talk with entrepreneurs, investors, collectors every single week. And these episodes are long, they're lengthy. And I want to make sure everyone has time to to really gain insight into some of the most valuable clips and sections from our from our people that we're interviewing on the pod. So in this episode, I'm going to be breaking down my favorite clips from our recent episodes because there's so much to learn. You know, June, it was a tough month for crypto markets, for myself included. And one thing that I'm proud of is the consistency of this podcast and, and being a source of not just entertainment, but also education. So if you want to be someone who gets a job in Web3, maybe you want to be a collector or investor in NFTs and and crypto tokens. Maybe you're just fascinated by the tech. Every week, this podcast is going to provide a deep dive into an expert in the industry where we really get some insight into how they're thinking, what they're doing, and what they're building. So you know, this in this last month, we talked to Matthew Gould, CEO from Unstoppable Domains, about reputation. Ryan Carson, who's an investor in the in the space, he's investing over seventeen thousand ETH into NFTs. We talked to Christian from Evaluate Market and how he's building that platform as an entrepreneur. Hasib Kreshi, who's an investor and thought leader in this space. I mean, Hasib's got a six hundred fifty million plus VC fund for crypto projects. George Harap, who's building on Solana. So we have a really wide range of interviews this month. And without further ado, let's just dive right on into them. So thank you so much for listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. This is the best of the month episode for June. All right, for episode 133, we talked with Matthew Gould. We talked about the really fascinating topic of on-chain reputation. So identity and reputation are so valuable and important, and there are topics in the world of blockchain that could really have a major impact on our everyday lives. So Unstoppable Domains has many product streams we're working on right now. Most know about how we turn wallet addresses into human-readable names. And in this episode, we cover reputation. We do a deep dive into how we can have a future where your on-chain transactions turn into human-readable badges and information. So Matt shares his definition of on-chain reputation, and we talk about the concept of transactions and how that relates to identity. We also discuss some specific examples about online reputation and how the world of Web3 will improve on these areas from Web2 or even in real life reputation. So let's dive in. Let's talk about some reputation in Web2 or real life. And so we can start drawing some conclusions around where we might be able to show improvements on that in the future. So I've got some examples that I've drafted up here. I'd I'd love for you to throw some out too if you have any that are really striking for you. But the first one is your work reputation. Now, that's your resume and specifically LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, we selectively choose what information we present to represent our experience, right? That's me simply, I type in my reputation score on on LinkedIn. No one's fact-checking that. Yeah, so that is an example of like Web2 reputation. And actually, one of my favorite questions to ask people about their LinkedIn resume is like, what'd you leave off of here? (laughs) Or like, what's the weakest part of this thing and what's the thing you you didn't put on here? But yeah, I would consider LinkedIn as 
uh, like in that category of like work credentials, because that's what most people are using it for. And then underneath here also follows like college degrees or maybe your CDL for truck drivers or your certification in a foreign language. And so this broad category of work credentials right now it's kind of painful to verify that information. You know, you hear the stories on the news. It's like, oh, this guy, you know, lied about having a degree at such and such a place, right? And that's a college yeah. degree. And those are re reasonably easy uh, to verify. And then once you, once you go off of that, it becomes even harder to verify that stuff. Yeah, there's a famous uh, Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I can't remember what it's called right now, but he he's a he's a doctor. He's like a politician. He's a lawyer all in one movie because no one can he falsifies all his documents and no one can actually verify that he's not what he says he is. Yeah. And this is part of the verification piece. And uh, it's actually a huge industry. So there are huge players that work in work credentials for Web2. And, you know, like and companies spend tens of millions of dollars like Walmart. And Amazon, I'm sure, also has this, but they have like work credentials for people who work in their uh, warehouses to make sure they have the proper training, whatever. And then that way they can move portably across uh, the different warehouse places where they where they work, and you know truck drivers, obviously. So there's just a ton of stuff here, and the uh, problem that you have is that you know you can trust a Walmart credential if you're Amazon, probably, like right. So like so like if you know if you can see that Walmart says that oh this person is certified for warehouse whatever level, and then you're Amazon, you're hiring, you're like okay yeah that that probably transfers. But if you have a if you have a you know work credential from maybe a smaller shipping and distribution company, it's much more difficult, and they don't have a process for standardizing those credentials on chain. And so what we really need is open system for any application or business to be able to post people's credentials so that third parties can then verify that data. And that way, when the user goes from, when, the, when you go from one interaction to another interaction, you can have them check against a third party who is reputable. Um, and then they can see that record on, on chain so that they know it was you know, written properly, right? So this yeah. this like this ability to verify is a blocker for really enriching digital identity, basically for every industry. And like, I'm a I'm a definitely a crypto boomer here. You know, I'm over thirty, and uh, so I think about real world things like these work credentials for for trucking or warehousing or all these other types of places where you may be going. But it's also online on your online just interacting with apps. So that's work credentials is one that I think is pretty big. Another one we do here at Unstoppable Domains is humanity check. It's like, you know, driver's license, DMV type stuff, KYC. There's a whole bunch of stuff around uh, regulated products that are going to make their way on chain because it's easier. It's going to be just so much cheaper for all these exchanges to verify your KYC or have you verify at one time and then use that portably across. Cause just think about the, the paperwork and the overhead. And if we can make that all digital too. Yeah. Uh, so quick, quick question there is if we don't have like this humanity check and KYC integration with NFT domains, that means you're going to have to do it at your, if, if let's say Coinbase requires it, you have to prove humanity there and then OpenSea requires that you have to prove humanity there. And then your next favorite app, like they might all start requiring it in the future. And without that domain integration, you would have to do it over and over and over again. Am I right in that thinking? Correct, yeah. And, and that's why we just think it's a no brainer to use blockchain naming systems, NFT domains, as this consistent identifier across these apps. 
and because you can tie that back once and it's going to right. do the most important thing, which is save people time and save them money, right? Because you just have to do it once and then you can use the same thing a bunch of different times. Uh, and we think that's, I mean, I think it's a much better future. Yeah. And why, why does it make more sense for it to happen at the domain level than the wallet level? Well, again, I think the biggest problem here is people losing their keys. So you need to make sure that uh, if you have one level of abstraction up, it's easier to build in backups and security around a name. And then also names are more memorable. So if I need to share my name to someone else to do a lookup, right, verbally, for instance, or even if I need to type it in, uh, I don't want to have to, you know, copy paste my wallet address across all those different places. So I think it's a huge improvement in UX and then also for consumer security. On episode 134, we were joined by Ryan Carson, founder of the 121G Fund. Ryan's passionate NFT collector. He's an entrepreneur and Web3 builder. He was working with the Proof Collective as the COO for Moonbirds, and now he runs his own NFT investment fund. So in this clip, we break down the three pillars that the 121 fund will be investing into. And right now, the fund is deploying over 17,000 ETH They've already started investing in July of 2022. Some of the investments they've made since this interview has been into Moonbirds. They did, I think it was like a 35 Moonbird floor sweep. So that was really awesome to see. It was interesting hearing his perspective on long-term investing and collecting of NFTs as he truly is taking a long-term bullish approach to this market, whereas a lot of people might be thinking more shorter term. So I was really interested to hear his three pillars and I hope you are too. Let's dive in. What made you want to go all in on Web3 uh, with the fund? Um, yeah. was, it, was it your excitement and passion from you know, getting the toes wet in everything we've just talked through? You know, is it something with the technology that you think is going to be revolutionary? Um, yeah, what, what would it really led to that? So the first thing I knew was that Web3 was going to change the world, right? So I, I saw Web1 happen. I saw Web2 happen. And as soon as I knew about Web3, I knew, okay, this is going to be the bi the biggest revolution in human history. And then when I went deep specifically with NFTs through proof, I selected NFTs as the specific vertical that I would focus on. And as I went deeper and deeper and deeper with proof and moonbirds and the entire community, I knew that there was so much value to be created. And so I think when I decided to launch a fund and then specifically to focus on NFTs. So we don't, we're not going to do anything else. We're not going to do equity investing. We're not going to buy any cryptocurrencies. It's pure NFTs. Mm. I knew that I was in the right place at the right time to do that. Right. Where essentially I've got, you know, two decades of experience as a CEO founder, and then I've got experience building proof and then experience launching Moonbirds. I just knew that I was in, I happened to be, and it's not because I, I, I think I'm amazing. It's that I, I'm just the right person at the right moment to launch, I, I think, a, a great NFT fund that can spot upcoming projects and deploy capital in the best upcoming projects. And so it was interesting to launch it. So, you know, I uh, decided to call it 1.21 gigawatts uh, fund because I love Back to the Future. Um, and if you happen to be watching this video, you might see I've got, uh, you know, the license plate from the DeLorean and various Lego sets. And, and then my wife had the idea of calling the tagline, uh, the fund you wish you could go back in time and invest in. Um, so it's a bit of fun. So 
picked 121G as the name. And then, um, you know, when we announced it on the 24th, I thought maybe I would get, you know, 20 investors and it would be a small fund and, and I would just kind of build it and kind of work. But the, the interest was overwhelming. We completely filled the fund in seven days and raised over $40 million. And I had to close the fund because there was so much interest. And I think what that means is everyone realizes now is the time, right? And, and the problem is unless you spend your, you know, 10 hours a day researching NFTs, it becomes very hard to pick the right projects. And so I think a lot of folks that are investing in the fund are passionate about NFTs, but they just know they don't have, you know, literally 50 hours a week to, to, and, uh, to research and, and vet and pick the right projects. So yeah, we're going to start deploying capital in July. And, uh, I, I, my goal is to focus on three pillars. I'll walk you through them really fast. So please, I think the, the fun is going to be between 14 and 17,000 ETH and, uh, 55% of that is going to be focused on, uh, what I call pillar one, which is vetted high quality teams launching new projects. So what we're going to do is we're going to identify 12 projects over the next 12 months that have experienced fully doxed teams. And then I'm going to interview them, um, have a real call with them and ask them, what's your experience? What's your plan? What's your treasury plan? What's your hiring plan? How are you going to roll out your OKRs and your KPIs and really vet them? And uh, once they meet my guidelines, then we're going to deploy uh, between five and 700 ETH on mint day. And uh, then the plan is to hold, right? So I'm going to meet with the teams every month, you know, ask them if I can unblock them, support them, connect them, but also hold them accountable. You know, how are you doing to your OKRs? How are you doing to your KPIs? And, and really understand how the project is doing. Yeah. Um, now, now, that sounds very different than how a lot of NFT teams and developers are really ex going through the motions right now. I mean, yep. I would imagine that, A, they might not even all have OKRs and KPIs. Uh, they they may not be thinking about how they're working with investors, right? So do you see that as potentially being a roadblock? Or maybe, it's a good maybe roadblock. your vision is, yeah, it could be a good roadblock. I guess maybe also as the NFT space matures, those kinds of questions and expectations could be the new standard. Yeah, and they should be the standard, right? You know, it, it's ridiculous that projects are expecting folks to deploy, you know, $3,000 into an unknown digital asset with no backing, no plan, you know, no experience. It, it's, it's crazy. Right. And we're, we're going to stay a million miles away from, you know, anonymous teams uh, and teams with no experience. So, yes, it's a roadblock, but it's actually a good one. You know, I want our bar to be really high. I think Moonbird set a playbook that's going to be repeated. Right. So we'll have more vetted, fully doxed teams coming into the space, building communities first. Right. So not PFPs, but they're going to be building communities first and then launching projects into those communities. Those are the kind of projects that we want to back. And um, I think we'll see more mint prices at you know the two ETH mark. And then I think we'll see more secondary uh, mint day prices at that five to seven ETH mark. 
you know, and we'll see this, this playbook repeat, which is good. It's good for the whole industry. It's good for the projects. It's good for holders. It's good for investors. It's good for founders. It gets good. Yeah. And, and I, what else you mentioned, there's three pillars. Did you want to touch on pillar two and three as well? Yeah. So pillar, so pillar one is, is, is at least 55% of the capital. So it's the majority. And then uh, about 15% of the capital is going towards one of ones. So I really, really believe in high quality, uh, long-term artists. And I don't think those artists need to have a roadmap. I think that they are talented artists building a community around their art. And I think one of ones from those artists are extremely valuable and wonderful and beautiful. And so, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have really good connections with some of the world's best artists. And so I just had a meeting with one of them and, and agreed to acquire one of their, uh, one of ones and then hold it. So we're going to hold, uh, we're going to acquire and hold very, very beautiful, very rare, uh, one of ones from those artists. Um, so excited to do that. Um, and there's about six, there's five or six artists on that list. And then the third pillar is proof. <laughs> I believe in proof. I know what's going on with proof and I've never had more conviction on a team in my whole life. Right. So we're going to deploy pretty heavy capital into the proof ecosystem. And I'm really, really excited about that. On episode 135, we talked to Christian Dittmeyer. Now, Christian is the co-founder of Evaluate Market, which is a platform designed to help you analyze your NFT portfolio and really see the latest developments in the NFT world. So he's here to talk about blockchain data analysis, how it works and what it means. And this was a really super interesting conversation for me uh, as someone who is thinking about how people might want to analyze their portfolios and, and track their NFT collections across blockchains. You know, some of the conversations we've had on the block uh, on the podcast, I almost said blog blockcast there, has been how we're going to be living in a multi-chain world. And as people start collecting NFTs across different platforms, Ethereum, Solana, Flow, to name a few, you need to be able to really visualize that portfolio, that collection all in one place and evaluate markets doing a really interesting and really well done job at bringing that all together. So let's listen to this clip. What strikes you as our, our biggest needs right now from a data perspective? Is it, uh, is it just the analysis or are you seeing broader data needs in like the NFT space? Yeah, I think it's, it's specific to each ecosystem. I think with Ethereum, the, the toughest challenge for developers is that listings live off chain across multiple wall, uh, or marketplaces. So uh, there's a fragmentation in terms of the process to go get the listings from LooksRare and go get them from OpenSea. You know, Coinbase NFT, it's still early on, so you, most people don't have access to those listings on uncertain in terms of like, I guess like the real vision for, for Web3 and blockchain would be that the data is accessible, uh, not just sales and transfers and whatnot, but why? also listings themselves. Yeah, why, so, why do they live off chain? Like, can you explain that a little further? Because I think I've heard about that with OpenSea, but um, mm -hmm. I don't think that's widely understood. Yeah, so the, the rationale on Ethereum is that fees are, are somewhat expensive, right? So in order to list or cancel or mint a, an NFT, you're, you're generally paying a transaction fee of you know tens or uh, in, in very busy times, hundreds of dollars. So the idea with sort of these lazy listings or sort of off-chain transactions is we're gonna delay that cost until the item actually sales, sells. So when you list something on OpenSea, you're not paying a transaction fee to list until the sale goes through and they've already sort of match made your order. So 
you know, and I think that's, you know, why there's advantages to, to Solana and Flow where the transaction fees are, are somewhat negligible. So you can do things on chain and that allows builders to kind of rally around that and, and, and use that data. But the, yeah, the short answer is that it saves people money. Uh, you can mint NFTs risk-free and OpenSea because you're not paying a transaction fee until somebody uh, buys the asset. Hmm. And so that would be why people, mo- a lot of applications, I don't want to say all, but a lot of applications rely on the OpenSea API. Is it because they're actually sharing the current data around floor prices, listings, because it doesn't live on chain? And so that's why we need the API? Yeah, and I would say because OpenSea's rate, API is rate limited, and obviously, uh, I mean, they're doing an excellent job, but there's a ton of people uh, who want access to that information. A lot of people don't even use the API. Maybe they just scrape directly from the front end uh, or, or use other sort of methods to, to collect that. But yeah, it, I think that's probably the biggest challenge there. And then in terms of Flow, just being sort of like an earlier ecosystem uh, that obviously has massive brands on it. So there's sort of you know compromises in terms of uh, being decentralized that they've made and are hoping to kind of ease more decentral over time. But yeah, each you know, I would say each ecosystem has their own drawbacks, but there's a, a lot of very smart people building in, in each of them. And I think we'll see a lot of progress. Um, yeah, that, that kind of, to me, sums up sort of the, the, the challenges on, on the data side. And it's really important. I think the more sort of access developers have to, to data, that, that's important, like listings data and, and sales and transfers and whatnot. Uh, even images are really tough, right? Like if you're a site like ours, we have tens of millions of assets. Uh, it's tough to like locally store all those images. And there's cert- certain developers who are building solutions for that. But yeah, the more access that you have to like the actual NFT data, both on sort of the market side and also sort of like the like property trait side, whether it's images or what attributes those NFTs have, the better experiences people can build in terms of like what shortages there are. I think a lot of people are creating projects because it's a good way to make a lot of money very fast. I think it would be better for the ecosystem if there was more builders building experiences that take assets from all of these different collections and unify them, whether it's sort of trading and, and things like that or, or gaming or even social. So I think that's something that is, is what we can look forward to in a couple of years is when there's developers building sort of these applications that allow these different collections to uh, to interact with each other or trade. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it is when, when almost all of my day-to-day NFT experiences are going to OpenSea, going to places like Evaluate, you know, looking at it's it's really like it's so trade heavy and I'm, I'm excited for it to be a little bit more social, a little bit more experience based. But it's definitely I feel like Yuga is a good example with, all right, they drop their token, they drop their land and everyone's like, OK, shoot, you did everything that the that top PFP projects should do. Now what? You know, now we're just like everyone's like, what? What's next? And there's this massive uncertainty. And and sure, there's things on the roadmap, but it's it's almost very just very uncertain around what you do while you wait when you have your NFT. And so having more experiences or tools to access, resources to dive into would be helpful. On episode 136, we were joined by Hasid Qureshi. He's the managing partner at crypto asset investment firm. Dragonfly Capital. Hasib talks about his journey into the world of crypto from a career as a professional poker player, his experience working with crypto for so long, and the similarities and differences he sees between today and the last crypto crash of 2018, you know, 2017, that time frame. So he also compares blockchains to cities, which is a really unique way of thinking through the many different blockchains. And I really like this, this analogy, this metaphor. So that the way he broke that down was awesome. Definitely go to the podcast and give it a listen if you want to hear him break that down. Now, for this clip, 
Haseeb breaks down why identity is the biggest problem to be solved in crypto, which makes me super excited for the direction we're heading in on Unstoppable Domains. So the way Haseeb broke down really the requirements of what digital identity needs for us to be able to operate made me think a lot. So that's why I like this clip. It, it really made me stop and think because it was a way of describing something that I hadn't heard before. So why we need digital identity, what the prerequisites are, that's what we dive into right here. I've heard you say that the biggest problem in crypto is identity. And I'd like, I don't know if you still hold by like that's one of the biggest problems or if that's just a big problem, but why is identity a problem in crypto? And I'm asking because, you know, at Unstoppable, we're thinking about Web3 identity really critically. And so I'm curious mm -hmm. as to you know, how you're thinking through that and, and why you think that needs to be solved. I do think that identity is the biggest unsolved problem today in crypto. It's been the holy grail for a very, very long time. I mean, people were talking about this back in 2017, 2016, about the idea of how to how to create and solve identity on chain. I think the, why is it so hard? The reality is today, when you interact with anything on chain, uh, you are an address. And it's very hard to make you anything more than an address. There, there, are, some, there are some applications that try to get more high dimensional data on who you are, such as you know, looking at have you interacted with governance? Have you interacted with this protocol? Maybe you're eligible for an airdrop if you did this, you did that. But it's it's very low dimensional data. We don't know very much about you, and we can't make good differentiation about you. So there are a lot of applications that are gated on having some robust notion of identity in order for those applications to work. So one obvious example is credit. It is impossible to have a notion of credit, meaning you, you you're able to borrow something without putting up collateral. Um, there, there's no way to come up with a concept of credit without having a notion of identity. I have to know who you are, and I have to know that if, in the case of a default, that something bad happens to you that, that gives you a disincentive to default. But if you want to do credit without identity, then you're just an address. And if your address goes in the red and you decide that, like, hey, it doesn't make sense for me to pay back the loan, you can just walk away, you know, sh shed the address and go start a new one. Like, what's going to stop you? How can anyone even tell who you were when you kind of walk away from your identity? In the real world, we have the concept of bankruptcy. Even if you take out credit and you can't pay it back, then you have to declare bankruptcy. There's a cost associated with it. There's a disincentive to do it. It's bad for you. You don't want to declare bankruptcy, right? It's, you'd rather pay back your debts if you can. We don't have a concept of bankruptcy in crypto. Bankruptcy is just, you know, you you go underwater on your loan, you walk away, start a new address, and, and it's done, right? You start a new pseudonym, get a new NFT, you know, PFP, and then you know, you're off to the races. So that concept has to change in order for us to have some of these more robust concepts like identity. And there are many more, there are many more things like this that require a notion of identity in order for them to work. Most of the world, you know, I was, I was chatting with somebody about this uh, a little while back, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Most of the world operates on credit. Like you go into... A you know you you land in a new city, and you go into the uh, you know the local enterprise the local Hertz, and you pay a hundred bucks to drive off the lot a ten thousand or now I mean now even more like a twenty twenty thousand dollar car. You're paying a hundred bucks a day to to have with you completely in your ownership a twenty thousand dollar giant complex piece of metal, right? How does that work? It works because of credit. It works because the world knows that we can trust you. And an enormous amount of economic activity is predicated on that concept. But we it is completely inaccessible to us in crypto. And I think that will eventually change. Now, it plays into other things like, 
you know, gaming, obviously that you, you need a more robust notion of identity for a lot of stuff in gaming, marketing, being able to market to people, being able to understand who they are and how valuable they are as customers. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a DeFi protocol and you can't tell, am I interacting with a civil attack, people, somebody who's trying to, you know, farm my, my airdrop, uh, am I dealing with a hedge fund or am I dealing with, you know, a, a random Joe Schmo? who I really want to get in the door. I really want him to start, him or her, start trading on my platform. If you can't tell the difference between those three, then how on earth are you going to do what FTX does? Yeah. FTX yeah. tries to find the, tries to find retail. They try to figure out who's retail and they bring them onto the platform. And then, you know, other folks who are traders, I'm not going to pay you anything. If you're, if you're just like a trading firm, you know, you have to come and, you know, pay me because you, you want my flow. You want to get access to the retail traders on my platform. If you're in DeFi, you can't do that. You have no idea who your users are. And so you can't really market. You can't really you know, uh, build a, a, uh, a strategy of how to develop your, your margin and attract high value customers because you don't know who your customers are. That has to change for DeFi to become competitive with CeFi. The last episode of the month of June was episode 137, where we're talking with George Harat. Now, George is the co-founder of Step Finance, which is the front page of Solana. Now, George has over a decade of experience in crypto and DeFi, and he's here to share what he knows. We talk about how crypto has evolved over the 11 years George worked in it, how many of the central narratives and trends have changed over time, like the shift from crypto as primarily a payment system to crypto as the basis of applications. So that's what we're seeing right now. In this clip, we talk through why George is still excited about the developments of crypto during a bear market. He's been through a lot of them. And so we're going through a bear market right now, and his perspective is very timely. So without further ado, please enjoy this clip by George Harat. What keeps you excited about crypto and DeFi right now, even in this downturn environment? And it's not the first time you've seen it, and obviously you've, you've stuck around. So I'm curious what insight you can share, what mental models or like frameworks that you, helps you think about crypto going forward um, during times like this. Yeah, well, I guess it, as long as I've been around, the, the whole sort of ethos with crypto is it's either going to be worth zero or like a million dollars a coin. Um, and that's I still see that that's, a, that's a, a reasonable sort of position to have. And on the surface, it's, it seems like a kind of ridiculous statement. But actually, it's, it's quite deep because what you're saying is that if crypto doesn't succeed in all the things that it says that it's going to do, whether it's payments or, you know, NFTs or digitalizing finance and DeFi and all this kind of stuff. If it doesn't do that, well, it's never going to ever sort of be at the point where it's at parity or it's just going to fade or it, it the, the definition of not succeeding means that it's, uh, you know, it's going to sort of fade out and become irrelevant. But if it does succeed, then that does kind of mean that it's just going to be a winner takes all game and it's going to dominate the other payment forms, the other ways of, of managing finances and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's going to be that sort of dominant mechanism. So I would say like, on the one hand, bear markets come and go, but if your thesis is crypto is something which is valuable and useful for the world and, uh, and you believe that it's actually going to gain traction over time, well, it just, it's just a matter of perspective on your time horizon of when the market's going to bounce back and realize that value. So like in, it might be the case that everyone's sort of, oh no, there's a bear market this year and, and that sort of thing, or the last four months or something like that. But if you zoom out like a year or two, like, you know, Bitcoin was at 3,700 in, in March, 2020. 
you know, and, it, uh, and, and all of the other coins that spawned from that were equally, you know, 100x lower than they are today. So it's kind yeah. of like, what, what time frame do you want to use? Like, do you want to maybe look at two years from now or three years from now? So if, if I would say that it, you, you've got to have, I guess, a thesis on Bitcoin or not just Bitcoin, but like crypto in general. Um, and if you think crypto is here to stay, then it kind of makes sense that, um, yeah, you can take a long term horizon from it and you can go, hey, yep, bear markets come and go. But, you know, turn off the app, go for a walk, go outside and uh, things will eventually revert. So, look, I, I've seen that many times before. Um, I, I think it becomes more complicated when you've got all of these different competing things, which may or may not have such a long time horizon, right? So if you have these protocols, which are sort of only around for a couple of years, I mean, the likelihood is that they're, they're probably not going to be there a decade from now. So I think what you've got to sort of look at is look at the teams, look at the people involved, look at, you know, what, what are the projects trying to do? And is this a viable thing that can actually last as a, as a real business? Or is this kind of like a cash grab for, you know, the next six months and then it's going to be gone? Because yeah. um, you, you probably don't want to apply the same thinking of, oh, I'm going to buy this this random NFT and, and that's going to be the same as Bitcoin is going to be here a, a decade from now. It's probably not. And, uh, you know, it, that's just the numbers and, and how they stack up, right, in terms of market caps and users and everything else. So, like, yeah, totally. I, I would I'd be careful with where you apply the logic. But um, in general, if you're bullish on crypto, like, probably don't worry about the sort of the gyrations of, of up and down markets. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening.